Welcome to Better to Speak, the podcast where we use storytelling to transform silence into language and action. I'm your host, Casey Felton. On today's episode, we're going to discuss diversity as the frontrunner of the Democratic Party and what Better to Speak's goal is as we approach the primaries and ultimately Election Day on November 3rd. And thinking about what I want Better to Speak's contribution to be this election cycle, I kept coming back to this idea of do people feel like they have a voice in this movement towards a more equitable and just society? Do people feel like their voices are being heard, like their stories are represented when it comes to policymaking, like the people that they've elected to represent them or who are vying for their vote to represent them are actively and adequately engaging them? And do they feel informed and empowered to participate civically? So I want to continue building this platform and holding space for people to share their stories as it pertains to civic engagement and identify viable pathways for all of us to be involved in the long term, which has inspired the official reboot of Better to Speak the Podcast. I shied away from branding and building a podcast simply because of the work required to brand and build a podcast. But as time went on, I realized that my form of activism as a journalism student and content creator is taking up digital space to discuss topics pertinent to the black community, to share my own story and understand clearly how that informs not only my work, but my worldview. So the topics that I'm planning to discuss, which are for the most part the top issues of this election cycle thus far, I'm hoping will give me the space to navigate certain issues in a way that I don't feel like I have before, and hopefully show other people you don't have to be a political pundit in training to make your voice heard on certain issues. I'm a firm believer in the idea that we're all experts in our own lives, and given that we live in a very politicized and socialized world, that absolutely has an impact on how we navigate politics, um, understanding how our personal story connects with different socio-political issues, for me at least, is helping me to develop my own political identity, as opposed to getting swept up in the circus that you know is politics that we're often presented with. So for example, I've heard a lot of people talking about um, the idea of identity politics, and more specifically, the idea of cult of personality. And so I think we expect one particular candidate to have the perfect policies, to have the perfect leadership skills, perfect personality. Um, Even as I've gotten more involved in politics, social advocacy, it's very easy to get caught up in and involved from the angle of, oh, this person is so great, we have to work really hard to elect them, which I don't think is a bad thing, but I feel like it it creates a, a culture that's more about supporting a persona as opposed to supporting policies and, for me, more importantly about supporting values and i believe that those values are illustrated of course in someone's personality who they are their story but more importantly in their policies um their staff their volunteers as well as the people that they inspire and galvanize as supporters and so when i say that values are important to me i look at how does a particular candidate inspire me in my community to not only go out and vote period, but to go out and vote specifically for them. And even further, do they inspire me to even want to get involved, you know, volunteer, become an organizer, get people out in my community to vote? So I don't remember, um, thinking back to my experience growing up, I don't remember ever being canvassed. I don't remember really seeing um, candidates out in my community campaigning. Um, I'll see yard signs every now and again. I remember going on field trips to, you know, my city hall and to Georgia State Capitol. I remember one time in high school, one of my teachers invited our house representative to come speak with us. So I've always been aware of this political world, this political universe. 
Um, the thought in my mind, though, was always, wow, there's this elusive, magical world where decisions are made, where society is constructed and shaped um, that has little implication on my actual physical reality. I was very, very clear on the feeling of that world is separate and disconnected from my own. The first time that was challenged, I would say, was with Michelle Obama's school lunch campaign. Of course, she's not an elected official, but um, that was the clear instance in which I saw a physical part of my reality changed as a result of a decision being made in the separate and elusive world. So other than that, most of my interactions um, with this world have been through the news as I become a young adult through social media. Um, I remember being in fifth grade while Obama was running and in my class we would have these superheated debates about, you know, regurgitating, of course, whatever we heard from the news or from our parents. And I say all this to say that, again, the concept of being politically aware and tuned in has not been lost on me. But it was really, really hard and I think even still is difficult for me to feel like I have a say and influence in how those decisions, not even just how, but making those decisions, period, and shaping society. So my MO now, especially as um, I try to build Better to Speak's platform and just find my my voice and my place in um, social advocacy, is how do we empower more people, specifically black people, even more specifically young black people, to feel like our voices matter and to create space for us to step into our voices and to step into our political power, whether that be through voting, through advocacy, through running for office, or whatever you know method of using your gifts and talents to create social change. And so with that being said, it's very easy to wanna hype up this dream of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but then fail to address the factors that have historically kept people out of civic participation and that continue to disempower us when it pertains to owning our voices in that regard. So looking at the democratic race as it currently stands, we see the perfect example of how diversity was essentially, in my mind, the front-running candidate of the Democratic Party. And now that we're coming up on the Iowa caucuses and primary voting, we're down to a pretty male, pretty white pool of candidates. And as I was doing research and reading other takes on what this means for the 2020 election for a post-Obama America, there was a lot of people, journalists, pundits, candidates alike, who kind of just like to shake their head and be disappointed that a Kamala Harris, a Julian Castro, a Cory Booker, just to name a few recent examples, had to drop out of the race. But they don't really, and I'm talking about like a larger national conversation, dive into the institutional and cultural barriers that never really set them up to win in the first place. So a prime example of this came from um, the Democratic National Committee's chair, Tom Perez, when he was asked about diversity in the 2020 race. The Democratic Party's long track record of fighting for diversity and inclusion is something that I'm very proud of. And all you need to do is look at the photo of the House Democratic Caucus and the House Republican Caucus, and you know which party is going to continue the fight to make sure that diversity and inclusion is part of who we are. I wish Kamala Harris and others uh, were still on the stage, but we made the rules. They were very transparent. They're very inclusive. And we can't change the rules midstream because there's a candidate that I wish were on, but didn't make uh, the debate stage. 
That's just a short clip of that interview, but essentially Perez repeats the same sentiment of saying that the rules just are what they are, they can't help if diversity suffers because of it. And I think that that's really indicative of how rules and policies that are set in place in any facet of life, whether that be education and corporate life, healthcare, whatever, that are essentially methods of regulation and quality control, but they tend to favor, not even tend, intentionally or otherwise favor those who have more economic or social capital, those who are white and male. And so adding on the idea of being a person of color, being a woman, not being as wealthy or well-connected, and God forbid you have intersecting identities of any of those, it's going to affect your ability to build and scale a sturdy campaign and organization. And that's what we for sure saw with Kamala Harris, with her even stating frankly in the email that she sent when she suspended her campaign, I'm not a billionaire, I can't fund my own campaign. So this opened my eyes to the overall structure of campaigns and how they operate. Um, and with the understanding that money is really what drives the success of political campaigns as well as access and relationships. And so again, with the Iowa caucuses coming up, there's a question in my mind about how does the diversity of those who participate in those caucuses, and for those who don't know, because it sure took me a hot minute to really understand this process, essentially the caucus is where voters who are designated, um, who are registered with the Democratic Party gather to discuss issues and of course, pick their candidate that they support collectively. There are ballots that are cast to determine which candidate they'll end up supporting. Um, and this is different than a primary election because caucuses are run by parties as opposed to primary elections, which are won by state governments. So there's a video from USA Today that really explains this difference pretty concisely. So I'll be sure to include that in the description. But essentially, my question was if the people who participate in these caucuses in Iowa really represent the demographic and ideological diversity of America to still have the weight of that first decision, which ultimately sets the tone for subsequent caucuses and primaries in other states. Former candidate Julian Castro raised that point and even took it a step further to openly challenge the order of the primaries while he was still in the race. I actually believe that um that we do need to change uh, the order of the states because I don't believe that uh, that we're the same country we were in 1972. That's when Iowa first held its caucus first. And by the time we have the next presidential election in 2024, it'll have been more than 50 years since 1972. Our country has changed a lot in those 50 years. Uh, the Democratic Party has changed a lot. What I really appreciate about Iowans and the folks in New Hampshire is that they take this process very seriously. Mm -hmm. They vet the candidates, they show up at town halls, they give people a good hearing. At the same time, demographically, it's not reflective of the United States as a whole, certainly not reflective of the Democratic Party, and I believe that other states should have their chance. Uh, so yes, of course, we need to find other states. Uh, and that doesn't mean that Iowa and New Hampshire can't still play an important role, right. but I don't believe that forever we should be married to Iowa and New Hampshire going first. And that's just the truth of the way that I see it. My concern, like Castro said, is that even though those people might take the job super seriously, the rooms in which those decisions are made, I feel perpetuate a cycle of people of specific identities not being represented at the table, not having an opportunity to make their voices and issues heard. There was someone who responded underneath Julian Castro's tweet of the video clip I just played who said, I live in Iowa and I felt extremely lucky to have access to candidates. Even so, I agree with you 100%. 
And so that raised another point that I didn't think about. Um, it perpetuates this idea of who gets to have access to presidential candidates. So going back to what I said about my own story and how I've been conditioned to see politics as this separate and elusive world, I can only think about you know when I've interacted with campaigns, let alone state and local, but national campaigns. I only saw Bernie Sanders when he ran in 2018, 2018 and 2016 um, at a rally in Atlanta. And then more recently, Elizabeth Warren, when she spoke in um, at Clark Atlanta University, um, I got the opportunity to take a picture with her. And then adding on the extra criteria of politicians who actually look like me, so other black women, I've seen Ayanna Presley and Lauren Underwood a handful of times, and then Stacey Abrams, who I met and took a photo with. And so I say that to say that when we approach certain aspects of political campaigning and when we have a system that forces campaigns to designate a certain portion of the electorate as more important than another or more of a priority than another i feel like that that messaging would make people feel left out and like their voices are not as valid as another voter simply because of where they live which i feel like not even feel like which i know would only be exacerbated by race and class and so again this perpetuates a culture that conditions certain people to know what the game is to know that they have a voice to know that they have decision making power in these elections while others feel shut out and like they don't have a stake in this separate and elusive world and in my learning about how campaigns operate it really comes down to the finite resources of time and money so campaigns have to decide where's the best use of those finite resources I think that Stacey Abrams did a really good job of this in 2018 to engage those portions of the Georgia population that have not, you know, historically been included in a political conversation. So rural Georgians, young people, black people, not only energized, engaged to come out and vote, but really feel like they are a part of Georgia politics. And now you see that Georgia is really being positioned as like a battleground state. And although she came across voter suppression, which is a whole nother topic that we'll dive into in the next episode, she really did set the tone for how campaigns ought to be run. Keeping all of what we discussed in mind, my goal with Better to Speak is to not get so caught up in the circus that is and will continue to be the 2020 presidential election. I really want to contribute to a culture shift, a paradigm shift in the way that we view and approach not only just elections, but holistically civic engagement. Um... I'm interested to see how the the drive to challenge our government, to really demand change from our government that came with 45's election carries over once he leaves office. Um, I just hope that the same, that same drive to apply pressure doesn't drop just because we have someone in office that we feel more comfortable settling with um, and being complacent with. I can't help but think of the, the crab in the hot water analogy where if you drop the crabs in and the water's already boiling, they'll be quicker to react. But then if you put them in lukewarm water, they get used to it, you increase the temperature gradually, and then they end up being boiled. Um, I think that 45 represents the, the former of that analogy and that he really lit a fire under America to really, again, start to demand that kind of change um, and be more involved in politics and kind of wake up and be more activated. And I know that black people have been on that tip for a while um, in terms of what we've been demanding as a community, but I feel like more, I more identities, more communities, more people have access to a platform to make their voices heard to inform people on their issues and galvanize support and so i hope that that energy carries over into the formation of a culture in which all of us regularly feel empowered to make our voices heard um, whether that be through whatever avenue we see fit and and see that actually turn into institutional change 
And of course, it's a watered down version from the one where we just burn America down and start over from scratch. But um, I guess this is good for now. So that's it for this episode as I'm officially rebooting and rebranding not just the podcast but better to speak at large as we move into our 2020 programming. I definitely want this to be a community driven platform so even though it's just me on the mic for now this is an open dialogue so feel free to share your thoughts with me on social media at better to speak underscore on twitter and instagram and you can visit our website better to speak.org. Make sure to tune into future episodes where we'll dive into various sociopolitical topics with the goal of transforming silence into language and action. Again, this has been your host, Casey Felton. Thank you for listening.